And there's a surprise in the room. <laughs> so good evening, Sangha relatives. So tonight I'm going to talk about one of the four foundations of mindfulness, or some one of the elements within one of the foundations of mindfulness that is timely at this place in uh, a long retreat practice. I bet you can all guess what it is. <laughs> it's in the fourth foundation. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the hindrances. Our friends, the hindrances. I'd like to start it off by asking, hindrances to what? What are the hindrances co covering up? What are they obscuring? What are they not allowing us to see, do, say, feel, think, realize? And I want to first ask the question, are hindrances our enemies? Oftentimes when we're struggling in practice, we can feel like there's something wrong happening something that's not supposed to be there happening. But I think there's a few ways to think about hindrances that might tap an understanding back into something that can be wholesome, a, a wholesome way for us to hold uh, these uh, small, medium, or, or large difficulties in practice. One is that the hindrances actually have a real energetic element to them. You know, they, they are thoughts which are energy, emotions which are energy, mental states which are energy. And we know that energy is available to us. So with some wise discernment and some wise reflection, some good antidotes that uh, the Buddha taught us, we can actually reclaim that energy. That energy is there for us. So they're not... You know, they're not our enemy, particularly if we can not take them so personally. They are a resource. And I've been talking a lot about resources, so we can think of them as holding a resource once we tap our understanding back into uh, a wise reflection of them. When they pass, the energy they have been um, taking up can be applied to samasati, Satisampajanya, that we've been talking about, wise, wise mindfulness, right mindfulness. So, what are the hindrances covering up? You know, how are they impacting us? You might say, well, you know, the um, hindrances are what we need to go through to get to the seven factors of awakening, to get to the jhana factors. But I think even more fundamentally, we can just reflect on what is the nature of an unhindered mind? What does an unhindered mind look like? There's this one wonderful Tibetan yogi named Shabkar, and he had this beautiful description of the essence of awareness or the essence of mind. 
Shabkar said. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And that is all of our minds. That wasn't just Shapkar's mind. Intrinsically empty. What does that mean? One way, well, there's a lot of different ways to understand emptiness. I think fundamentally it's empty of a self. Empty of our conceptualizations of a self. Of course we have a relative reality, uh, you know, bunch of causes and conditions that walks around that engages with the world. Of course that's true. But our biggest freedom comes from realizing that on an ultimate level, that's all we are is really a karmic bunch of causes and conditions walking around the world. Uh, with, you know, wholesome qualities and unwholesome qualities and um, that really determines how much the outside world has an impact on us. How much wisdom and knowledge we have about the nature of reality. Not from thinking about it, not from reading Shabkar, You know, that could be a wonderful finger pointing at reality, but of course, that awareness of, um, you know, our true nature, it's not a theoretical understanding. So that's one way to think about emptiness, that there is no solid soul or self that's there, that we are forever changing, unfolding causes and conditions based on you know, internal and external factors. And then the other level of intrinsically empty is that all of the um, objects that we see in our world are also empty, that they come together based on, um, they are building blocks with elements that come together based on contingencies and interdependencies and they arise and pass away, you know, based on causes and conditions. So just as we don't have any inherent self, all of the things in our world doesn't have any inherent self either. They're not, they don't exist on their own side, as it were. One way I like to think about this, I know this is probably gonna get too theoretical, but there's this wonderful, post-colonial scholar named Jacques Derrida. You guys know Derrida? And he has this theory about the mystique of the metaphysics of presence. So Western philosophy is so getting so Buddhist lately. And the way that uh, I have to teach theory in my classes and I say, one way to think about emptiness is if you believe in God, if you have that concept, it's the idea that God does not have a three by five card in heaven that says what it means to be a woman or a man or a native person or a Western European or an old person or a young person or a trans person or a woman or a man or an other gendered person, that those are all coming together based on causes and conditions. And um, 
that's a really important thing to know because you know why we train the mind is because the what's going on in our mind and our heart is um you know determines how we experience the outside world so that's intrinsically empty naturally radiant i love this when you look at when you try to look at awareness awareness of awareness what do you see you don't see anything <laughs> Awareness of awareness, but you can experience the innate knowing of any particular um, part of the five sensations. You know, you can experience your knowing, hearing, feeling, thinking, tasting, smelling, but, you know, what is experiencing that is such a mystery. I mean, Western cognitive brain science doesn't know what it is. It's still trying to figure it out. But there is in it this innate knowing of all sentient beings. It's such a beautiful mystery. So that's the uh, naturally radiant aspect of awareness. And then finally, one other aspect that uh, Shabkar talks about is that it's ceaselessly responsive. I love this part of it that if we could rest in awareness that is not encumbered by greed, hatred, and delusion, and these hindrances that I'm talking about tonight, that our heart, mind, this awareness, unobstructed awareness, always knows the appropriate response to any situation. You know, not having to think about it, just coming from chitta, from that heart, mind, from that presence, from that from awareness, it always knows how to respond. Like water flowing down a mountain, making its way to the ocean, it knows exactly how to get there. It's a union, they say, of, and these are concepts, of course, but wisdom and compassion. The way I understand that, when you think about it, what is wisdom? Wisdom is always about how to reduce suffering. Isn't that compassion? The two are so, so linked together. So those are, uh, that is one way to talk about the nature of the mind, the heart mind. And again, I just want to emphasize again that these are conceptual overlays. These words are fingers pointing at the moon, but the reality of it is so much bigger than any way that I could express it in words. A finger pointing at the moon. And the reality, reality of it can't be expressed in words. It's too profound for that. So in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the Nivarana Sutta on hindrances, the Buddha says to the gathering of the community, bhikkhus, there are these five hindrances, hindrance, hindrances, which five? Central desire as a hindrance, ill will as a hindrance, sloth and drowsiness as a hindrance, restlessness and anxiety as a hindrance, and uncertainty as a hindrance. These are the five hindrances. So as we know, 
you know, we might think, well, you know, how good of a meditator am I that I'm having all these hindrances? But when you think about it, this is what the Buddha saw in his own mind. I mean, the reason why he put, you know, the five hindrances in the fourth foundation of mindfulness is he was saying that these are things that are our common humanity. This is what he saw in his mind. So in a way, we could say, hey, I'm having the same experience the Buddha had. <laughs> we are. <laughs> it's a way to take refuge in his wisdom and his experience that it's a common humanity. They, none of them belong to us. And um, so in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is our beloved instructions for the practice that we're doing, it also gives us, and I'm going to say them very pithily here, ways to, uh, ways to work with the hindrances. One is to recognize when a hindrance is present. So that's always a good thing. You've got to recognize when they're present. Uh, recognize when a hindrance is absent. So that's interesting. I actually was doing that on my last retreat, just reflecting on, wow, so there aren't any hindrances now. I've gotten past the breakers of the beginning of the retreat, and I've gone into a, um, the domain of uh, a little bit more of the seven factors of awakening. But the, the hindrances do get a lot more subtle as you practice longer. You know, they can often still be there in much different, uh, subtler manifestations. So knowing when a, uh, recognize when a hindrance is present, recognizing when a hindrance is absent. This is a good one. Understanding the conditions that cause a hindrance to arise. Understanding the conditions that cause a hindrance to cease and exploring how to prevent the hindrance from arising again in the future. Sounds a lot, a lot like right effort, doesn't it? Right effort applied to these things that happen to all of our heart-minds. So before I get into each of the individual um, hindrances, I'll go through them. I want to give another way to um, bring those qualities to, to uh, the four right efforts regarding the hindrances. And that is, you know, simply to use our mindfulness. And one of the, you know, ways that we could do a little checklist about how we're doing in that regard is our wonderful acronym RAIN. I'm sure we all know RAIN, right? So the first is to recognize what's happening. Oftentimes, a hindrance in our mind will feel like a struggle of some sort. It'll feel like a struggle. And uh, that might, you know, give us a little motivation or be a cue for us to uh, look at what's happening at this moment. The way I like to phrase it is to put a mindfulness frame around it, to really see the edges of that experience. Sometimes, or a lot of times, the hindrances are like salt in water, right? They are just permeating our entire perceptual field, but in a way that's not very obvious to us. It's just like some dye-coloring water or salt in water that is everywhere, and there doesn't seem to be any edges to it. But with 
mindfulness and clear comprehension, we're able to see clearly where the boundaries of those are. And that's just to recognize it. That's probably a high level of recognition, but to even just ask the question, what is this? The second is to accept it. And, you know, not to, I mean, I know that oftentimes when I'll see a hindrance, I'll see the hindrance and then I'll flinch. Do you guys ever do that? Do you ever see anything and then flinch like, oh? And then that becomes the next thing to see. <laughs> there is the, uh, the uh, recognition of the hindrance and then the lack of acceptance with the aversion to the hindrance. And then there's whatever that hindrance was and aversion. <laughs> Sometimes it's aversion to aversion. But then that's just the next thing to see. That is the next um, either mind state that is uh, coloring strongly or even weakly coloring our perception, or maybe it's thoughts that we're having or an emotional response. And that's where the next step comes in. Well, and this allows us to accept it. It gives us the, uh, you know, we might do a reflection like, hey, this is what the Buddha had. I mean, how can I get mad at myself, right? This is a common humanity. If you have a heart-mind, you're going to have these. So it's a, a, a matter of accepting. And then, so that's recognize, accept, and then investigate, which we know is a really beautiful quality. They say that that is the, a really important um, element of our awakening, is this curiosity that doesn't try to... Um, you know, doesn't necessarily try to shove our an, an whole experience down a thin straw of concepts, but rather is just open to what's happening in the moment. And uh, so investigation, to be curious, what, you know, what is this experience like? And, you know, there's ways, you know, that we can think about the elements of investigation. How does this feel physically? How does desire feel? How does sleepiness feel? How does uh, aversion feel? Or restlessness and worry or doubt? And it's really excellent because they're never going to feel, they're always going to be different. So it's excellent to do an investigation of what the uh, parameters or, you know, the edges of that are, you know, based on what uh, the hindrance, you know, what caused it to arise, it's going to feel differently. So, and dismissing it too quickly uh, without, you know, investigating it can be um, not very helpful. Sometimes, and oftentimes actually, and I'm sure you've experienced this, as soon as you see it, it totally just disappears too. That is often what can happen as well. But you know, what are the dimensions of investigation that we can consider? How does it feel in the body? You know, get a Vedana hit of it. Is this pleasant, unpleasant? Is this neutral? How does it feel emotionally? Is this feeling... Um, you know, is this based on some sense of loss, some sense of um, my um, conception of myself as better than, worse than, or equal to? And then energetically, we love this with our mindfulness, right? Our mindfulness, the data collection system for our experience without concepts, we can feel energetically, what does this feel like? 
Is there feelings of rushing, sinking, or lifting? Or is there, is it energetically strong, a buzz, or is it very subtle? And then cognitively, cognitively, you know, what stories does this give rise to? That's often where we get lost in the stories, the constructions of self and other and the universe that happen with the hindrances. We can get lost in these stories and that's all they are, they're stories. And then motivationally, I love this, you know, what does it motivate us to do? Do we want to act? Do we want to cling? Do we want to run away? So it motivates us to do something. So we could consider that. So that all of those are different ways to hold a wise response to the hindrances. So now let me talk about what they are. Of course, we know the one that uh, many of us have in the beginning of, beginning of retreats is sloth and torpor. And it's interesting because Sloth and torpor is pretty obvious in the beginning of retreats. And my experience from my last retreat was I would have it like a month into my retreat, but it was a lot more subtly manifested. You know, it was hard to really, you know, it looked different as the time went on. But what does uh, sloth and torpor feel like? What are some of these characteristics? Oh, and then, I'm sorry, the, the N of RAIN, of course, is non-identification. And that's related to the, that wonderful reflection that Carol gave us last night about right view. You know, and, um, you know, someone, when we were doing meta the other day, gave us an excellent reflection on how to bring right view. She told us that she says, I think that was you, you said, you know, um, may this body be happy. May this body be free from suffering. As a way to just incline the mind towards seeing the contingent and changing nature of these mind-body experiences. So that's RAIN. Recognize, accept, investigate, and non-identification. So sloth and torpor. And, uh, and so sloth is considered part of the physical lethargy, weakness, and tiredness that we have. And we all know what that feels like. And then the torpor is the mental aspect of that. The feeling like slogging around through deep mud, um, not really, not um, able to develop any sense of stability maybe in our mindfulness. And what are the causes of sloth and torpor? What are some of the things that cause it to arise? You know, that's one of the things in the uh, sutta to understand what the causes of um, sloth and torpor are. We all know one good cause, and that is overeating. And that's maybe why we offer the eight precepts, that as a way to um, increase the alertness and the sharpness of our, of our practice, that we could give up maybe eating too much and... Um, that might brighten the mind and increase the alertness. Um, so um, another cause of uh, sleepiness can be um, feeling complacent about our meditation. And uh, you know, maybe feeling like we have a little bit of tranquility or peace and letting go of uh, the sharp sense of a mindfulness of really holding our experience 
between um, sinking into it or pushing it away. You know, that's another way to think about mindfulness. It holds the object in the middle between resistance and obsession, between denial and um, clinging. So we hold it in the middle there, clearly, and just really pay attention to what's happening in this moment. So complacency, misguided acceptance, uh, bad posture can lead to uh, sloth and torpor. And just sleepiness can. I mean, coming into retreat, having worked really hard, and not getting enough sleep can lead to that as well. Complacency, discontent. You know, a lot of times, I don't know about you guys, but I'll get really tired when I don't want to face what's happening in the moment. <laughs> right? i got to go take a nap. So when something's arising that's uncomfortable or just too overwhelming for us to see, we can often get sleepy in response to that. And then there's just plain laziness. I know that's a very pejorative word and it triggers me to even say it. But it's like a lack of, you know, uh, balancing our effort. You know, that's a really important part of our practice too. Not trying too hard, absolutely, but not trying too little as well. Just really watching the balance of our energy and uh, not having a balance is one uh, cause of sloth and torpor. And then the remedies are uh, adjust your eating, changing your body posture, standing meditation is excellent. You know, we all know that the Buddha taught four postures for meditation and knowing those postures as an excellent uh, focus of our mindfulness and standing is one of them. I think we're actually going to have a little extra treatment on standing meditation. Um, actually opening your eyes and taking in light can sometimes arouse you. Staying in the open air, maybe sitting outside if you're really sleepy might actually uh, provide some brightness of the mind. And then it's so beautiful that um, all of the hindrances uh, have uh, two remedies that are the same, and that is noble friendship and suitable conversation. And isn't that beautiful? Noble friendship and suitable conversation. And, you know, we're a sangha here, practicing for an extended period of time. We are all the f noble friendship. We are each other's friends. And we are our... Uh, and what we say to ourselves in our heads is the suitable conversation. Isn't it? I mean, we're not talking to anybody else. <laughs> so it's just being really careful that we're, you know, knowing what we're watering in ourselves, whether we're watering greed, hatred, and delusion, or we're watering the causes of happiness and awakening. And then another good reflection for all of the hindrances uh, as well, and this is really relevant for me, I'm feeling this a lot, is knowing I'm going to die. Does anybody else feel that? I so know I'm going to die, boy. And that's a, I think that's an excellent, it's not a mistake that we're dying, it's not a punishment at all. In fact, sometimes I think, wow, what a nice relief that would be. <laughs> not that I'm, you know, suicidal or anything, but 
just knowing that, you know, the time that we have to do the practice is limited. And then, you know, knowing that however our bodies are showing up right now, at least we're able to come to Spirit Rock and sit on a long retreat. You know, we might have new knees and arthritis and, you know, whatever it is that we're bringing here. Um, we know that we're well enough to, to practice the way that we're practicing together. So reflection on that. And, you know, although there's nothing but the present moment, each present moment, this heart, mind, and body is getting older. <laughs> so aging, sickness, and death is uh, an excellent reflection for um, kicking up the energy around uh, working with the hindrances. So that was sloth and torpor. Personally, I will actually sleep a little more if I need to. And if I'm really drowsy in uh, on sitting practice, I will do more walking. That works for me. Opening the eyes, sitting up straight, standing up. And then the second one is considered the opposite of that, restlessness restlessness and worry. But I've actually had a multiple hindrance attack where I thought I was restless and sleepy at the same time. I don't know if that's possible, but we all know about multiple hindrance attacks, right? So what is the uh, manifestation? What does restlessness and worry and anxiety typically feel like? So there's a physical aspect of that, and that is just feeling very animated and feeling like your body wants to go. I remember uh, on one retreat, I was sitting at IMS, and I was just, did not have a good balance of concentration and energy. My energy level was too high. And I was just feeling very fidgety. And in my mind, I was giving people metta, but I was screaming it in my mind. <laughs> May you be happy. And I thought, wow. Yeah. So it could be, you know, compulsive energy bouncing through the body, um, overexcitement and exuberance. And I have that a lot. I'm a kind of an exuberant person. I get excited about stuff. Maybe that's restlessness. Uh, there's a tendency in the mind to, um, and a lot of time restlessness actually has negative Vedana. So you could have restlessness and aversion at the same time, like getting really fed up with yourself. And it's good to see that. So there's physical re restlessness and then the mental re uh, restlessness. And I'm sure that we all have know what this feels like. An inability to focus, to really just drop in and stay dropped in. The mind recoils at being directed anywhere. It says, what? You want me to do what? It just won't do it. It doesn't listen to us. <laughs> right? Or is it just me? <laughs> and it's also a mind that's never satisfied. I get that ex experience with restlessness too. It's like, no, that's not good enough. Let's try this other anchor. Let's try this other practice. It really jumps around because it can't find anything that it feels comfortable with. It jumps from one thing to the next, incapable of settling. It's the classic monkey mind. And then there's another aspect of restlessness too, is, which is worry. And that's a really interesting 
Um, it can manifest, of course, in a, probably a lot of different ways. But worry is, is uh, classically thought to be associated with um, one of two things. Uh, something that you have done in the past that comes up and you're just agonizing over it. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And uh, sometimes uh, that kind of reflection can be very wholesome. You know, there are two qualities in Buddhist psychology called hiri and otapa, which is fear of wrongdoing and shame of wrongdoing. But that's very different than guilt and a real self-centered conceit of, man, I am just, you know, a piece of whatever. You know, perseverating on not being able to get anything done or maybe things that we've done in the past that just keep coming up and torment us. That can be an aspect of worry. And then anxiety is an aspect of restlessness and worry. And that is a fear of something happening in the future, but really, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be attached to anything. So what are the causes of restlessness and anxiety? This is, you know, again, the directions are to look to see if one of the causes are there. One of the things is just our absolute addiction to thinking. You know, we want to think, particularly when we have neutral Vedana. When we have neutral Vedana, for me anyway, and classically, it kicks us into creating a movie, developing a story, or trying to get some entertainment through uh, greed and central uh, pleasure of some sort, for me anyway. And um, so that's some of the causes of uh, anxiety and worry. Addiction to thinking. Impatience is really a, a very, could, can be a very predominant cause of restlessness and worry. I, I think I'm going to give an impatience talk. So, you know, they say that impatience is like the fundamental, um, the fundamental um, parami for awakening. It's one of those absolutely necessary, maybe not sufficient, maybe it is sufficient for awakening to happen. It's so important. So trying to water seeds of patience can be very good. And actually, there's one element of worry and restlessness uh, and thinking that is actually good when we see how much our past negative behavior, you know, based on greed, hatred, and delusion, really does impact our ability to settle. It's a wonderful incentive to actually lead a much more uh, wholesome life, you know, sila. You know, we have to have strong sila to to really be free of all of this ignorance and delusion that we are walking around with. So that's, you know, that could be a good uh, reflection. You know, all of our past actions that we regret are either something we committed or omitted. And it could be good to reflect on, you know, what positive qualities weren't present and what negative qualities were. And again, the remedy for uh, restlessness and worry, of course, is uh, rain again, you know, just really bringing, recognize when it's happening, accepting it. Hey, this is what the Buddha felt, man. He was feeling restless. Uh, accepting it as common humanity. We're an exquisite club. You're in probably an exquisite club of meditators in this room that are also feeling that. 
and um, investigation, you know, where are the edges of it? Can I get my mindfulness frame around it so I can decondition it? You know, you see it with mindfulness and you say, yeah, this is unwholesome and get ready to um, let it go. And um, to rain and then uh, classically they say restless and worry is also um, abated by um, knowledge of the Buddhist scriptures, the doctrine and disciplines, asking questions about, um, about what the Buddha taught, uh, familiarity with principles of moral conduct, knowing the five precepts and the eight precepts, and really integrating them deeply into just who we, who we are in our life in retreat and off retreat. And again, noble friendship and um, suitable conversation. We all have noble friendship. And our conversation is just being careful about, you know, what we're thinking about. And actually in Joseph's brilliant mindfulness book, which we should all have five copies of, <laughs> I've got like five copies of it. Uh, he says in there that one of the causes of restlessness and worry is provocative discussion. And I don't know about you guys, but these times sometimes can be really they can be very um, a cause, just the external things happening for an internal provocative discussion with myself. And then metta and loving kindness practice are excellent, broadening the focus uh, of our awareness. I love predominance, that's what I've been practicing a lot. And that is not picking what my object is gonna be, but it is, uh, you know, Joseph has this wonderful practice he teaches a lot now, which is there is a body. So I bring mindfulness to my body, and there'll be different sensations in the body, and mindfulness will pick the sensation that it wants. It often is like the breath, but oftentimes there'll be another sensation that arises that mindfulness will go to. And, you know, just watching the nature of that experience, see if we can watch it arise, what it you know, the characteristics of it when it's there and see what happens to it, which is what happens to everything. It arises, is there for a while, and passes away. So uh, predominance, you know, getting bigger. Don't trying to, not trying to really stay on something uh, that is very difficult for us to stay on to make our awareness a bit wider. And then investigating some of the underlying unconscious beliefs we have about us being, you know, not good enough, you know, like I am the worst yogi in this room and people are going to figure that out. You know, that's a source of worrying. Or even the opposite of that. Do people get how wonderful I am? <laughs> or is my interview teacher going to understand that I'm like this close to being enlightened? And then the next one is, so we've had uh, restlessness and worry and sloth and torpor, and those are considered, you know, two sides of one coin. And then there is uh, desire and greed. And uh, desire and greed is manifest by thoughts in favor of something. When you're in favor of it, like, yeah, that's a good thing. Judgments about something that's great. Craving, especially sensual craving wanting and grasping, clinging to something, attachment. 
And it was interesting, in my last retreat, I really saw the distinction between tanha, which is craving, and upadana, which is attachment. It's interesting, they're different. And so what are the cause of desire and greed? Unwise attention, right? Not seeing it as it starts to come up, as that mental factor is arising. It's good to catch it in the very beginning. If your mindfulness is um, steady and continuous, it's, it's easy to see those things as they arise and they tend to not come to full flower. Other causes of sensual desire and greed, again, for me, I get uh, a lot of uh, wanting some entertainment in neutral Vedana again. It's like I just lose the ability to focus because what I'm looking at is less compelling or maybe because what I'm looking at is a lot more subtle than uh, pain or you know the wonderful pleasant feelings we get as well. Another cause of uh, desire and greed or sensual pleasure, looking for sensual pleasure, is a feeling of um, loneliness. Is, an, is also loneliness and a sense of loss. And that's interesting because I've had experiences on retreat of profound loneliness. Do you know that feeling like just profound loneliness. And oftentimes when we get that, we'll look uh, as a, uh, to something to resource ourselves that isn't really a very wholesome way to resource ourselves. There are very wholesome ways to open to that and to nurture ourselves, but uh, going after sensual desire is um, not necessarily what we want to be watering the seeds of. And again, um, how do we, what is a wise, a wise approach to desire and greed as we see it arise in us? First of all is to just set the intention that it really, that you know, we're going to try to let that go and get a deeper insight and understanding of it. You know, I've been on retreat and I'm gonna just be very self-revealing here that I would go for like three weeks with a romantic fantasy and for some reason it never fell into the mindfulness frame. It was like we would just accept that that was an okay way to spend a couple hours of the day, romantic fantasy. <laughs> I'm sure none of you do that, right? <laughs> what is that about? I think it's just wanting some pleasure and you know, we're trying to resource ourselves in ways that really aren't the most helpful. There are other ways to resource ourselves and we really need to understand what those are. But to just set the intention that no, I'm not gonna get carried away with romantic fantasy. That was so much one of my um, um, expressions of desire that, you know, of course I gave it, you know, we all give the habitual habit patterns. That's what we wanna see, what the habitual ones are. So when they come up, we can say, oh, Mara, I see you. You know, we can really acknowledge that we're seeing a negative mental habit pattern and not water the seeds of that. When we let it go, we're just watering the seeds and allowing it to remain as strong as it is or even making it stronger. So, um, you know, Mara, I see you and I'm committed not to carry out this fantasy. 
So that's one way to think about it. One remedy is to just set the intention that we're not going to indulge. Again, moderation in eating, noble friendship, suitable conversation. <laughs> what are we saying to ourselves about that? And one, one um, reflection that I like around sensual desire is um, just to realize the ultimate lack of satisfaction of any conditioned thing. I mean, we love our partners to death, but they're not enlightening us, really. We love, you know, maybe we love our art, we love our dance, we love all of it. And have we ever gotten so much of it that we, uh, that craving went away? No, I, I'm saying that we totally need to um, have that be a source of joy for us, but to realize that our well-being, you know, comes from a deeper wisdom and compassion in these heart minds. What are some ways of dealing with uh, desire and greed? Just, you know, say, no, I'm not going to engage in fantasy forever. Looking at the unattractive parts of the body. As I get older, that's a lot easier to do. <laughs> Yeah, you young people are going, eh, well, I'm not there yet, but all of us a little older, we so get that, I'm sure. So practicing on the unattractive parts of the body, and then focusing on, uh, focusing on what would happen if you actually got what you wanted. That's like another, you know, interesting fantasy that would come up. What would happen if you actually got what you wanted? That usually... You know, there's only one thing that'll happen. It'll arise, it'll be there, it'll be satisfying for a while, and then you'll be figuring out, you know, what can I do with this? That's what eBay is all about. That's what <laughs> Craigslist is all about. <laughs> Getting what we want and then not being able to get rid of it. Because the satisfaction is very impermanent. <laughs> so um, these are some ways of um, working skillfully with the hindrance of greed and desire. And then we know the opposite one of that is aversion and ill will. And that has, uh, those two are a little bit different. Aversion is... Uh, Wanting things not to be the way they are. It's like something is happening right now and I don't like that. It should not be here. Thoughts against, judgments, censure, disliking. And then ill will is so interesting. That's the other uh, uh, entertainment that we can have, right? The other fantasy that we can have on retreat. Uh, the Vipassana romance and the Vipassana vendetta. And that is, you know, seeing how we get, um, you know, mindfulness magnifies things and these hindrances distort things. And with the hindrance of ill will, you know, we make up stories about the person sitting next to us that their purpose on earth is to make us uncomfortable. <laughs> we can think that. We can think that. 
we're the center of the universe to everyone who's, uh, you know, just making us really uncomfortable and not giving us what we need. So that sense of ill will. And it's worse when we have ill will towards ourselves. That is something that we really need to work on with self-compassion. So aversion, and what's the cause of aversion? What causes aversion? Oftentimes that's unwise attention to the negative aspect of something. You know, we all have positive and negative qualities and as does the world. And aversion often comes when we're just zeroed in on that one thing that makes us mad. And we don't really look at the, at the whole, at the entire, entirety of what it is that is really um, impacting us negatively. You know, I mean, I'm going to be real honest. I'm an old woman of color who grew up, you know, when this was a very difficult place to live and people's very racist and sexist and um, classist ideas were okay to have. And um, I feel like I get microaggressions all the time. And uh, if I was to actually allow myself to be impacted and just feel, take that personally, and somehow think that that was my fault, I couldn't get anything done. So my response to that is to, you know, the Buddha has this wonderful story about what happens when someone gives you a gift, but you decide not to take it. You can just say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. You've got a lot of uh, vipa losses, a lot of distortions of uh, perception, thought, and view, and you're having one right now, but that's not my problem. That's your problem. Sometimes, you know, it definitely impacts our chances in the world, but that's how dukkha shows up for us. And our, our well-being isn't dependent on those external things anyway. It's, you know, it's difficult to work with, but how else can we work with it? We have to work with it. So the cause of aversion is just seeing the worst parts of everything. Aversion can come from physical pain. Um, a lot of us are feeling that right now. In the beginning of retreats, oh my gosh, like just the tightness right here and the tightness in our bodies is just so remarkable. Joseph once told me that, you know, that's actually your body unwinding. You know, that tension is there all the time, but because you're not open to what's happening in your body, you just don't know what's there. You know, we're doing a lot of purification in this practice, just opening to what's happening and letting go, letting go. And, um, you know, all the little traumas that we have in our life on a daily basis. It's not just people of color and so-called target groups. Being human is full of dukkha, the first noble truth. And we're all assaulted with uh, dukkha and pain, physical, mental, and misunderstandings all the time. And that's part of the process of the beginning of retreats is just letting that go, letting that go. And, you know, caring for ourselves, loving ourselves during that process. And the remedies of um, ill will or uh, learning how to meditate on loving kindness, really building the strength of your love and your acceptance in your heart, building that, building that quality of a very positive... Um, 
you know, a very positive uh, mental factor that is absolutely associated with awakening. Um, I love thinking about being heirs to my karma. It's like, wow, karma's a bitch. And uh, I'm really careful. I mean, you know, I don't want to do anything that is going to be the source of, um, you know, my own suffering or other suffering. When I was on retreat just last month, I had so much hearing in Otapa. Actually, I'm going to be really honest, of being a teacher in ways that maybe I could have done things differently to be a better resource for people or ways that I... You know, I'm a very, I have the, one of the paramis that I have well developed is honesty. But, you know, when you care, care, take your paramis a little bit too far, they can turn into uh, things that are negative. So sometimes I'm a little bit too honest with the way I say things. And I'm trying to be really guarded with how I, knowing the sensitivity of all of us, to just be really careful with that. So that's part of it is, you know, don't, not wanting to create any negative karma. And then the Brahma Viharas are excellent for um, working with um, aversion and ill will. And then also reflecting on our good deeds. And of course, you know, noble friendship, suitable conversation. And then doubt, finally, the last, uh, the last hindrances doubt. And that's actually a very, very tricky one. Because oftentimes, I think that's one of the hardest ones to see. Because um, sometimes it could look like wisdom, like, uh, am I doing this right? I have to figure out exactly right how to do this. It's like doubt in our ability to follow directions or to... Uh, you know, if I'm not having a blissful experience and if I'm not getting into jhana, I'm obviously not doing it right. You know, a lot of doubt of ourselves in doing the practice. Doubt of us, you know. What could they know? She's a new teacher. What does she know? And uh, doubt, that's doubt. And doubt in the practice that we're teaching here. You know, there are different ways of spiritual development, and, but we're teaching a very specific uh, way uh, of spiritual development that the Buddha taught. We're teaching Satipatthana. That's what we're doing here. And wondering whether, you know, should I, you know, I like the other uh, approaches that are a little bit more interactive and friendly. You know, there could be doubt about the way that we're teaching it or how we express it. And what are, what are the causes of doubt? I think it's really not understanding, uh, you know, not having a full picture of what the Buddha taught. And, you know, for me, that's an ongoing pro process. I really, you know, I, I kind of let it out of my feelings about the Buddha, so. <laughs> I don't have a lot of doubt, but I often have doubt in myself about whether I'm doing it right or should I try this or try that. So that still comes up, of course. And uh, the remedies to that are to actually let go of a lot of thinking. Part of that is also uh, us being attached to our linear minds and thinking that we can figure things out. The other thing that I loved about the Buddha, I mean, one of my very favorite aspects of him as a teacher was people would ask him questions and he would say, you know, I know the answer to that, but that answer is not going to lead you any closer to freedom from suffering. So why do you even ask that? And I love his, uh, his, uh, 
his non-engagement was speculative thought. I just love that. It's like, you know, think about what's important. There's a, a trend in social science right now, like, shouldn't we be looking at human suffering? Shouldn't be that's what we're investigating? You know, inequalities and lack of access to things just that people need to be healthy and well. Shouldn't that be what we're focusing on studying? And uh, I think the Buddhist said the same thing. He said, don't think about how to privatize and corporate, you know, be a corporate success. Think about how you can let go of your suffering and, you know, be a, a refuge for yourself and the world. And that's, you know, the intention that we're cultivating here. So those are the five hindrances. And, uh, you know, I like to do, when I'm struggling in practice, I like to do a little bit of a hindrance check. Is this one of the hindrances? What's going on here? As a way to just settle back. And then to let go of thinking that the practice needs to look a certain way. You know, that's it a lot of times, like, I've got to strive to have it look like this, rather than to hold an intention, be present for whatever is unfolding in that moment. This is a lawful process. It is a lawful process. When we cultivate positive uh, mental factors and we purify the negative ones, it unfolds lawfully. And, you know, that's the opposite of doubt, is just trusting and having faith and confidence. And we all know it. I think we all know that or we wouldn't be here sitting a month or two months. And to rely on that, to connect with that, I think is very beautiful. That can be an excellent resource for us in it, when any of the hindrances arise, to really connect with what brought us here. And the goodness of being here you know, I love the, what is it, the Mangala Sutta that said, it doesn't matter, you could not have one minute of mindfulness in the month here, and it would still be an incredibly positive and meritorious thing for us all to do. It doesn't matter what the experience it is, it's a very positive, and it will have, it will contribute to the unfolding of awakening for all of us. Just resting in that. So the time is up. Let's uh, sit for a second. May the positive energies of our practice be dedicated to the awakening of all beings in all directions. And especially the ones sitting on the mat underneath you or the chair underneath you or the cushion or however you're feeling it. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.